Want to make your own podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easy, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. Here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like I have an outlet for the creativity and ideas I want to share with the world. I recommend you give it a try. We all have a voice, so share it with the world. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started today. Welcome to the Days of Noah podcast, where we talk all things biblical, supernatural, and strange. This week, with permission, we are reposting a portion of an interview that the late Rob Skiba gave with Tim Bentz. And Tim has given us permission to post a portion of this interview as I reached out to him and just express how profound this principle uh, that he speaks of. He calls it the gatekeeper's principle. The idea that we as believers, as the body of Christ, have an incredible influence on what our community, our family, our community, our city, our nation experiences in the way of how the spiritual world is allowed to flourish, either for good or for bad. Uh, based on what we allow in our own hearts. And so this was an incredibly convicting and challenging and encouraging uh, message uh, in the latter portion of Tim's interview with Rob. And this was after he had described his uh, spiritual warfare with uh, the Canaanite altars, uh, dealing with the Federal Reserve. Um, And so... You'll definitely want to to hear the entirety of that interview, but this particular portion uh, focus, uh, focuses in on some of the more uh, personal holiness kind of aspects of this, and uh, I think you'll find it uh, quite fascinating and profound. thing that I wanted to lead us towards uh, before we run out too much time was just looking at how to pray and how to do warfare in this area. And it starts first with my own repentance. I, I can tell you I could go through hundreds of examples of God dealing with me personally in my heart, helping me see things that were grieving him that were in my own heart that I have to deal with before he 
leads me to do the type of thing that we described with the altar. You, you don't gain authority to deal with the kingdom of God things out there in the world if you've not dealt with them first in your own heart. You, you can't just go bust an altar and change the world if you haven't changed it first in your own heart. So power with God comes first by repentance and getting right with him and learning how to think more like him and be more like him and act more like him. And then when he leads us to do something on behalf of our city or our nation, his power shows up on a larger scale. And you have the right to go do those things with his guidance when you're walking in his ways. Well, I... I can't be the only one doing this. God's raising up all of his kids. The, the, the secret nuclear weapon in the earth is God's children. And he wants every one of his kids to be walking like him, talking like him, acting like him, being like him. And we change the earth one at a time. You know, God has always kind of um, led me... Uh, very, very personally, I've had a wonderful relationship with him since I was a child. So uh, the pursuit of God has been my number one goal, to, to really know him, to know his face, and to um, learn his ways has been my goal since my youth. But the idea of spiritual warfare, um, I've had a lifelong journey to learn some principles in that, and some of that came from learning some wisdom, some of it came by just doing it the wrong way. Uh, and by the wrong way, I mean there isn't always, that isn't always bad either. Sometimes God just leads us by taking us somewhere, and along the way you learn something. Um, my first understanding of spiritual warfare happened in, when I was uh, in junior high, and uh, we were praying for revival to come to all of our friends and to our school, me and a few of my other friends were getting together early in the morning before school started and just praying for uh, everyone else in our school. And we began to pray for each child uh, in our school by name. So and during the summer months, we were meeting uh, three or four times a week and praying earnestly for God to give us uh, just um, some wisdom on how to lead our friends to the Lord when school started again. Um, so I'm thinking that I'm going to go to school and be more evangelistic. And uh, God decided to answer that prayer first with spiritual warfare. So I show up first week of school and <clears throat> walking down the hall, as I had done the same year before, often with most of the same kids. Only this time as I'm walking to class, uh, a young lady that I had known for several years and had always known her to be a pretty nice a pretty nice girl. Uh, she looks at me, her face grimaces up, and she starts growling at me. And this very masculine voice comes out of her saying, I hate your guts and, I, and we're going to kill you. And I'm like, what? Like, what is that? And the Holy Spirit said to me, that's a demon. Cast it out and then get to class. Don't be late. <laughs> and so I just... I just turned around and I said, you know, that's not my, you're not my friend, you're a demon. The Lord says, come out of her 
in Jesus' name. And she began to cough and and scream and then ran to the bathroom, threw up, and her countenance totally changed. Peace came on her. She was she was delivered. It was a very simple thing. Um, but she came out of the bathroom and felt totally different and was quite um, troubled by what had happened, but at the same time felt free. So I said, you feel better? She said, yeah. I said, we got to get to class. We don't want to be late. And we just went on to class. Um, that's a simple thing. But later as I got into more deliverance and praying, um, things that we would consider spiritual warfare and praying on site and, and things, I realized that sometimes I found myself losing that simplicity. You know, that we sometimes make this a lot harder than it is. And it really is just hearing God and obeying Him and trusting that His power will accomplish what is necessary. But it's also taking a stand. So instead of ignoring a problem and going on to class, instead of, you know, thinking that girl's crazy and I don't want to be around her and having a bad attitude towards somebody that God loves, it's confronting it face-to-face and taking a stand and saying, you know, so I, I found the balance of I have to get to class on time, but I'm not going to ignore a demon and allow it to have a free reign in my school because you know? it's going to affect my space. It's going to affect my life. It's going to affect my friends. It's going to ruin her life. It's going to ruin her family's life. And, and God sent me here. You're not going to – you can't stay here and me here too. And – but it's not me either. It's saying that Jesus is in this school because he's in me. And if he's here, you you have no right to be here. So when she was delivered, I got called into the principal's office before the day was over because he found out about it. And uh, he wanted to know exactly what happened. And, and he was a Sunday school teacher, but he didn't believe that Christians could have demons. Yeah. And I, a lot of people didn't believe that. So this girl was supposedly a good Baptist girl, and and he knew I was a Christian. And to him, it really bothered him that she had a demon. And I looked at him, and I said, well, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but I kind of feel like Christians can probably have anything they want. <laughs> and so I said, I don't know how she got it, but she she needs to deal with some things that I'm sure the Lord has showed her. All I know is I'm not going to school with a demon, and neither do you. You don't want that. And he's like, well, you know, do we need to call a counselor? He's thinking she's not really demonized. She just Maybe she's crazy. We need to call a counselor and send her home. I said, no, look at her. She's just fine. <laughs> she's, she's better now than she was this morning. So he sent us back to class, but he was still a little troubled by the fact that that happened at school. And later I thought, Lord, uh, I hope he doesn't get into trouble over it. Uh, I know she's going to go tell her parents. I know he's going to inform the parents of what happened. So this is going to come up again later. And and what do I need to say? How do I help her not have any any trouble relationally with others? And and how do we do this with anyone else that needs this? And the Lord said to me, no one has taken prayer out of schools. You're still here. And you're still praying. He said, just be bold. Do what I tell you. Be respectful of the authorities. But don't back down on issues 
that need my help and they don't know how to fix them. They need my help. You know, and he said he encouraged the teachers and the authorities that they need my help. And it's going to get so bad at many of the schools in your country in the years ahead that they're going to be begging for somebody that knows how to fix these problems. And I need my kids to be bold and, and tell the tell the principals, tell the teachers, we've got the answer. It's right here in the Word of God. It's the next time you do a deliverance, it'll be in the classroom in front of everyone else. Don't be afraid. And so it, it, it happened a few months later. I, we had a a guy that was involved in the occult that he started giving a, a talk about it and doing a, a speech about it and bragging about things that he'd done that was pretty pretty weird and pretty horrible. Then the whole class was disturbed by it. And so I just asked, Lord, what do you want to do about that, Jesus? I don't think you want to tolerate that. And Lord says, I love him. I want to save him. But... He needs to be set free. So I began to pray. When I began to pray in in my seat in the classroom, he got very disturbed. Next thing I know, he's manifesting in front of everybody. He's slithering on the floor a few minutes later, growling and and acting like a snake and just freaked everybody in the room out. And so me and two other people that knew the Lord just got up and walked over to him and commanded that to leave and and the spirit left him and he came back to his right mind. Everyone witnessed it. And when when that event happened, half the class ended up getting saved. Not not immediately but within days. Because they saw the power of God. And they had not seen it before in their church. And they'd not seen it before in the city. They'd not seen it before in the marketplace. And they're not seeing it because we're not doing it. We need to be doing this stuff anywhere where it manifests. We need to be understanding that sometimes that person yelling at their wife in Walmart or or that kid that's freaking out with his parents and, and throwing a fit, sometimes that's not just an attitude problem. Sometimes that's something demonic going on and it, it needs to be delivered. It's not always the case. We have to discern that, and we have to hear God in those cases. But we still should be bold when it is something that God wants to deal with. And evangelism is very easy when people get saved, set free, and delivered. And I found very often Jesus likes to show up and fix a problem and then ask somebody if they'll receive him or not. And so he'll heal them or he'll deliver them. And then he'll present himself as somebody they should believe in. And sometimes we try to do that backwards. We try to get them saved and, and, and then hope they'll get better. And we need to not allow a demon to come to church on Sunday morning. We need to allow him not to come into our space any longer. We certainly don't need to be competing with them at the Walmarts. And so well, you know, I think you hit on something there that uh, a lot of people are not aware of earlier. Um, and this is something that I learned myself at a um, men's retreat. It was all good, godly men there that I knew in in church, and you know, uh, had no reason to question their walk with God. You know, and by all indications, they were good, godly believers. And then we had this pastor come in and do deliverance, and um, you know, I, and then I see some of these good, godly guys puking up demons, <laughs> and getting and getting delivered. 
you know, that rocked my world because I, I grew up in an environment that taught, you know, Christians can't be possessed. But I, I've come to disagree with that notion that Christians cannot be possessed because we're a three-part being, spirit, you know, mind, and body. Uh, you know, maybe our spirit's okay when, when, when the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells us, but you still got your mind and your body left as uh, potential places for them to take up residence. And in, in my experience, it seems to have manifested in, you know, bondage, depression, addiction, uh, health problems, you know, different things like that. Uh, and so just that alone, realizing that, you know what, even we Christians, you know, not just the other guy could have these things too, you know, and that that's why we do some of the things we do. That's why we can't get free of some of the things we're stuck in, you know, that, uh, yeah, what's the line, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing man that he didn't exist or something like that? I think part of it is saying that, well, uh, demons can't uh, possess Christians. But from what I've experienced and from what you just said, that would appear to be a lie, that uh, it is possible for for Christians to have some nasties hanging on to them. I think... Sometimes it's semantics, it's, uh, you know, are they oppressed, are they possessed? It's like, all I know is it's a demon problem, and you know, yeah. we can get the, demons, get the demons out of the room, then we can figure out the theology on it later. I'm not saying that that's, uh, I don't want to sound unwise either. I, I'm a, a strong believer that we've got to listen to the Word, follow the Word, and stay grounded in the truth of the Word of God. But one of the things that got to me on when I was questioning that, because I grew up in a church that did not do deliverance, and, yeah. and, you know, didn't even hardly believe the demons were relevant today. And I was confronted with it face to face. I had to deal with it because God allowed it to get in my face, you know. Um, but he took me to the passage dealing with Peter where Jesus said to Peter before the cross, you know, Peter, Satan has desired to shift, shift you like weeds, but I have prayed for you. And that's not necessarily means that Peter got possessed, but... There's certainly something there that Jesus was aware of that Peter was about to have a yeah. demonic problem, you know, and he needed his prayers to be delivered. You know. So, and we see that story play out a little bit where Peter denies him and goes into probably a horrible depression after the cross. And, and I, I, I'm convinced Peter believed that he was not able to be rescued. Yeah, and he didn't even believe resurrection because he didn't feel like he was worthy anymore you know yes jesus delivered him with a simple word he said go and tell my disciples that i'm alive and peter yeah right he threw a little praise in because he was making sure that the women said to peter's face he spoke your name peter he right. called you by name you know and what that did that do that, that delivered him of shame it delivered him of whatever that was that was holding him you know yeah so Jesus answered his own prayer, you know. And um, when I began to look at that, I, I found that most of the most of the scriptures that deal with demonic activity are releasing the righteous. They're releasing God's people. You know. And yet, granted, the world has these problems too. But uh, I had to really come to grips with what God's people are letting into their own heart. The next thing the Lord did to me is he took me into um, um, kind of a, a journey that lasted for two or three years where he started dealing with me 
about Gake a term that I, I teach now that's, that many people understand it somewhat, but it's called gatekeeping. And gatekeeping is a simple term. It just means somebody standing at the door. And whatever you let in, God lets in. Whatever door you shut, he shuts. Whatever door you open, he opens. So think about that authority that he's given to all of us. Mm. If I'm in a city and God says to me, I've given you authority to open or shut the doors, well, then how do we do it? And my city doesn't have walls, so how am I standing at the door of my community? Well, with God, everything goes back to the heart. So the door that opens or shuts in your city is attached to your heart. Whatever you allow in your heart, God will allow in your city. Whatever God's people decide to get out of their heart that's displeasing to him, God will deliver their city from those things. When I learned that principle, I was upset about certain places in my city that were crime rate was really high, murder rate was real high. There was one corner in my city that was called Murder Row, and nobody could figure out why people kept getting killed there. It wasn't the worst spot of town, but for some reason, murders always happened within that square mile. And it was a phenomenon. Police were trying to figure out what was wrong with that area. And then we were looking at uh, places where just all kinds of drug activity seemed to go and nobody could get, nobody got caught. It was always people got away with it. And then we started looking at the, where's the vice, where's the places that are where evil has a foothold. And I'm praying over my community and I'm praying over some of those areas that needed to be transformed. And God, instead of giving me a word of the Lord, to go to the broken area of the city to to preach the gospel and transform it, God started dealing with my heart first. And he took me to this spot where um, 20, 22 people had been murdered. And he said, do you want to know how to fix this? And I said, sure. I'm praying. That's what I'm asking you for. And he said, there's an iniquity on the land here. The iniquity is when someone sheds blood, but then it goes, an injustice gets attached to it. It doesn't get fixed. That's the same principle as what I was describing last show with the altar at Jekyll Island. Babies were sacrificed on it. And even when Huguenot French Christians witnessed that, they didn't know how to stop it. They didn't know how how to win that tribe, so they fled from it. And they went down to San Augustine, Florida, and, and founded a colony down there. And then they got martyred themselves. They became the bloodshed instead of the ones that witnessed it. I don't know how to explain that, except that they didn't deal with it when it was in front of their face, and then they ended up being subject to that. So I, I'm standing on that corner and asking the Lord, how to, is there a way we can see the murder rate drop in this neighborhood. And the Lord said to me, sure, all you have to do is command my people to repent for hating their brothers. Because if you hate your brother, you're releasing the spirit of murder in your city. Hmm. And so I went to my father, who was a minister, and I went to other ministers that older than I was, and I gave them that word, and, and I got angry responses which was odd, not not from my dad, but from others. And 
I realized that there was an anger problem in the Church of God, especially among leaders, and that anger was often directed towards one another. And there was this disconnect of understanding that if I harbor hatred in my heart towards a brother in Christ, I may be opening the door of my city to a spirit of murder. Mm. And I asked the Lord, I said, would you please explain that to me? I, I know I heard you, but how does that work? And he said, well, what you do with restraints was you're not, you might get mad at somebody and you might say in your heart you hate them. But you're going to restrain yourself because you know me. You're not actually going to go kill them but because you release hatred. You know, it releases that spirit in your city and the world that doesn't know me. That will open up the demonic realms of hate. And then they will do it without restraint. And so he said, if you want to see this shut, bring some of the people in your city who know me and have had an issue with someone else that they know that they shouldn't have had. And have them repent on this side towards one another. So we did that with about seven, eight people. Just got a little crowd, two or three people that had had an issue, and you know, they brought the one they had had a problem with, and, and we forgave one another and reconciled and asked God to forgive us of any hatred towards one another, and then we asked him to release that from others that had the same problem all over town. And the motorway dropped and has never returned to a significant level on that spot in the city. Just from a handful of believers acting in one accord with our Lord's heart. So I started learning that a remnant has a whole lot of weight with God. That we, It doesn't always take a whole lot. It just takes the right understanding and the right heart. And so we got a city of a close to a million people. It's amazing that God can take seven or eight people who act in one accord with him. And and he'll transform something that may have benefit the whole city. Um, so I started asking for more of that. I said, Lord, I really want to experience that more. Um, take me deeper. And he's like, do you really want to go deeper? Because it means I have to plow up you. Yeah. And Lord then said something very amazing to me. I didn't know how phenomenal it was until a few years later. But he said, son, you have given me your heart with everything you understand. You've, you've always responded to me when I've asked something of you. But you've not let me go into the places of your heart that you don't know are wicked. The things that you've not done yet, that you will do if you don't deal with them. And he said, will you let me go there? I said, Jesus, I want to be like you. Whatever you got to do to gain me, I want to be like you. So I don't know what to say except yes, you know, do what you must, but gain my whole heart. And I went through hell and high water where God began to deal with me and deal with me and deal with me and deal with me, and he wouldn't let me get away with anything. I mean, I, little things that other people got away with, I didn't get away with anymore. But the standard went up because I asked for holiness and righteousness over my own heart. And it wasn't God punishing me. It was he setting me free. 
But he began to periodically come to me and say, son, you've got this issue in your heart, and you don't even know it's in there. It's never come out. You've not been tempted in that area. But I know it's there. Here's scriptures that deal with that subject. Begin to pray on those. Begin to meditate on those scriptures. Speak the word over your heart. Confess these things. And I'm like, Lord, I've not done it. If I've not done it, how is it a sin? It's almost like I can't comprehend how that's in me when I can't see it in myself. He said, well, you need to let me shine a light on it. And he said, this is what David was doing, King David, when he said to me, show me my transgressions, that my heart will be right with you. you know? So a transgression is like something that you're doing wrong and you don't even know you're doing it. Or it's something that you're going to do wrong just because you don't understand God's ways. You know? When the opportunity comes up, you're not going to make the right decision because you don't have the right foundation for it. And so God began to deal with my heart on that level. What happened is then, every time he would gain something in me, then he would connect it to the community. He said, all right, let me, go sh let me show you now where your city's messed up in that same area. And now you can pray for it. Now you can speak to it. Now you have authority in the gate. When you go to people in your city and you begin to address that subject, they'll hear you now because you've dealt with it with me. We have power with God when we become like him and when we use his word correctly, rightly dividing the truth. So I found this gatekeeping principle was profound and not that many people in the body of Christ understood it. So I started talking about it a little more and sometimes preaching about it, and just um, trying to say, I want to comprehend this more. Can we transform the whole city with this? And, and I said, this is how all revivals work. When my people repent of their sins, that's what revival is. When the city that doesn't know me, or the, or the nation that doesn't know me, repents of their ways, that's an awakening. They said, before you get to awakening... I, I bring judgment to my house. I bring correction to my own house. If my people who are caught by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. And so I found that we had this really horrible uh, condition in America where lots of God's people were grumbling about the sins and conditions of the, the cities of the nation, but not really fully comprehending the sins that were in themselves that God was displeased with. One big area that I would like to address with this is um, uh, two things which also relate to this um, Jekyll Island stuff. Um, we see this story in Genesis where Abram and Lot have journeyed together and they're in the promised land now. And then we have this passage where it says the Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen began quarreling. And when they began quarreling, it was because the Lot's herdsmen were saying, the grass is not green enough over here. The land is not able to contain both of us. And so they were pressing their sheep on the side that belonged to Abraham and his herds. I don't know if they actually had a boundary between them, 
Uh, I assume that so because they had some understanding of this is Abram's sheep and this is Lot's sheep. But they began quarreling because they were saying, you know, you got too much of the good grass, we need more of that. It's an odd story when you read the context because shortly before that, the word, part of the blessing God had given Abraham was, see the land that's before you, it's big enough, uh, you, you will multiply and, and possess it. And I've given this to you. It, it can contain you. you know. But suddenly Lot's attitude is the land's not big enough for us. It can't hold us. The grass is greener on the other side of the fence, and I want that. So the quarrel wasn't really over green grass. The quarrel was over, I want more land. I want the land that belongs to you, not just the land that belongs to me. And so when two righteous people start pressing the boundaries and trying to displace one another to gain a little more ground, it starts a quarrel. And that quarrel caused the separation of those two groups. Abram, with wisdom, gave Lot a choice. You take, you take your choice, and if you want to go that way, I'll go this way. If you want to go this way, I'll go that way. He's like, you take first choice, and you can have the best of the land if you want. He just didn't want the quarrel. But what we see in Lot is when he chose the greenest area, and he ends up at the gate of Sodom. We assume, most scholars of the word, assume that Sodom was such a wicked city and it was already full of wickedness and that it was judged to a point where God wipes it out. And Lot was, the, there's one scripture that says, Lot's righteous soul was vexed from day to day by it. So he's righteous because God called him righteous, but he's not right with God because he's got a quarreling spirit and he's got a boundaries issue. Those two problems set up a scenario that caused a city to be destroyed, a separation between two family members, and then end up with incest in Lot's house. So I would... would proposed to my brothers and sisters that before it became a sexual problem, it was a boundaries problem. Now, here's one thing the Lord said to me. When I'm looking at all the churches in my city, and we won't work together, and we won't come into unity in one accord, and we won't even, we won't even come together and pray together over the city, I would propose to you that that's a boundaries problem. It's, it's not because we don't all agree on doctrines. It's not because we don't all think that we're valid. It's one pastor over here knows that that church over there is pretty valid. But if they won't get together, if we won't come into one accord, it's because we've got a boundaries problem. We've tried to stake out a spot that we want, and we want to enlarge our spot at the expense of our brothers and sisters. So most churches in my city were trying to enlarge their congregations, and they didn't care what that did to the other congregations. And so if one church grew to four or 5,000, it wasn't always from evangelism. It was most often by taking four or 5,000 from the other churches. That's a boundaries problem. We're not regarding what God has given to our brothers and sisters, and we want more for ourselves. When I've seen that in the city and in the heart of God's people, I can always find the sexual replication of that. You'll find um, all kinds of major sexual problems in a city that has a boundaries problem. If you find history in your city 
where boundaries were abused. Maybe uh, one group was displaced to take it over, like Oklahoma, you know, took the Indians' land away, and they were supposed to have it till the grass, as long as the grass grew and the, the rivers grow, uh, flowed, and we took it away from them again in order to homestead land for ourselves. If God didn't orchestrate that, then we displaced one group that God had given rest to in order to have something for ourselves, and that's a boundaries problem. When I began looking at that, I realized that almost all sexual sins are the breaking of a boundary before they're the breaking of a sexual law. So pornography is a good example of that. Pornography comes into our homes, and it's violating the the boundary of your home. And often it it shows up in our computers and we're not looking for it. It finds its way into us if we don't know how to put safeguards up. And so if it gets a hold on your heart, it causes something to be seen you shouldn't be seen, and it causes the thoughts and intents of your heart to be warped a little bit. And pretty soon it can manifest fully into uh, all kinds of other sins. But looking at it from a gatekeeping perspective, if I'm a believer and I'm not dealing with that issue and I'm hiding that and I'm doing it secretly and I'm, I'm justifying that it's, it's okay, you know, well, then it releases, opens the door to that and it releases that into my community and it becomes something done without restraint by the rest of the world. And we have to see how often God connects the root issues that grieve him in communities with root issues of the hearts of his own people. And so when I started looking at that aspect, I said, Lord, uh, how do I deal with that? How, how do I deal with, with things? And these were the things that God started looking at in my heart and saying, you've not sinned in this area. You don't. You've not done this. You've not gone this way. You've strove to be like me. Nevertheless, if you didn't know me, and if you if you face this temptation somewhere down the road, and you don't come to grips with my heart first, then you could open up to this. You could open up to these things, and you could become much more wicked than you understand. I've restrained you in many ways by revealing myself to you in your youth, but give me your whole heart, and. There's two ways to sin. You can sin when you're tempted and you don't resist it, and then it becomes full-blown. Or you can just have lust in your heart and you don't even know they're there, and they catch you by surprise. So I'm I'm starting to deal with a lot of my friends, saying that it would be better if we would let God have our whole heart and let him plow us up and go after us with intensity so that he deals with our heart before it becomes a temptation, before it becomes something that we might sin in, and taking ownership of the social ills of my community by representing him with the right heart. I went into some of the wicked sexual issues in my city, and I didn't go into those areas of the city and say, I used to be a prostitute and now you need to you know, listen to the gospel, or I didn't go to the homosexuals and the lesbians and say, you know, I've had a problem with that, but you need to repent because that's wicked. Now, what I did is I I went in and I said, Lord, if I didn't know you, if you hadn't saved me in my youth, if you hadn't transformed me by your blood, 
I would probably very likely have these issues because the world is wicked and I would have gone the way of the world if I hadn't known you. So if any of that would have been in me if you hadn't rescued me, give me grace to repent for it as if I was guilty from it. I've not done those things, but give me grace to repent for it as if I'm the worst, most wicked heart of the city. Hear my prayer when I pray on behalf of my city with these issues. And give me your heart for the people that are stuck in those things, that are subject to them and don't know how to be free of them. Help me know how to heal them. When I prayed that, the Lord threw me for Luke because he said, would you really be willing to touch those areas? Yes, sir, I would. He said, all right, go down to this address. And he gave me the address of, of a gay bar in my city. He said, go down there and knock on the door and tell them that you want to wash their feet and that you want to repent to them for the way ministers have treated them. And you want to tell them about my love. He said, don't condone their sin, but you tell them I love them and I can heal them. But you have to have my heart if you'll do that. And the only way you're going to have my heart is if you'll go wash their feet. I don't think that is required of everything that God's asked me to do, but in that one, Lord had to make me do something extraordinary to gain his, his love and his heart for an issue that I didn't want to deal with. For the prostitute, God started dealing with them, began to deal with my heart about the prostitutes, and there was a couple of areas in the city where they hang out often. And he said, before you go down to those areas and try to get them saved to try to change the area, he said, you need to understand the prostitute is a victim of poverty or a victim of some kind of social need that she has before she becomes a victim to sexual sin. Someone takes advantage of her instead of helping her out. And she offers herself to get gain. It doesn't start with sex. It starts with a need that she can't provide for herself and someone offers her a way to fix it the wrong way. This is the rooted in that spot that says you won't lend to your brothers without interest. You won't help the poor out when they need it. You won't rescue the alien who is traveling through your streets and you just ignore these things. So they end up in prostitution and then they get condemned because they're prostitutes. He said, so if you want to go down there and try to save them, first go down there and offer them what they were not given the first time. Ask them how they got into prostitution. You'll find they were hungry, or you'll find that they were trying to feed their kid, or you'll find that they were stuck somewhere and didn't know what to do. And instead of somebody rescuing them, someone offered to fix that for a sexual favor. He said... Why won't my people rescue people when they're in these kinds of problems without requiring anything of them? Yeah. So I, 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 I started dealing with that one. Um, what I found is that every time, every time I gained God's heart towards a social ill, and he transformed my heart at the same time, then authority to deal with that subject on larger scale increases. So you gain more and more 
grace from the Lord to turn the enemy back at the gates when you become more Christ-like. And I really did not have much power with God to pray for America until I had gained a lot of ground in my own household. Sure. I had to ha- I had to understand how to be a priest in my own household and pray for my own family and and see my own family saved. Um, sometimes by speaking the gospel and sometimes by repentance on my part. But I, I looked at that progression that me and Jesus, then my family and Jesus, then my city or my commu- my church community, then my city, and then my nation. And uh, I think that's the pattern of going into all the world and preach the gospel, first in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then Samaria and then in the outermost parts of the earth. And I, I remember that God has always been a family man. And so what good would it do as a minister to go out and try to save the nation if I did not care about my own household? So my wife has become the most important person in my life, other than Jesus. My children are not just kids that I love. They, they're my treasure. They're, they're more important to me than anything God does with me. And I put my household above my ministry. I gained a lot of grace and authority with Christ when I made my wife and my children my priority. And I subjected my ministry to my own family. Instead of making them just tag along and do all the things that God wants me to do, I want them to live in God's perfect will. And I had to find that in my household and then let God redesign that in ministry. And so I, I, I laid my ministry down for a little while, not because I didn't want to do it or not because there was a problem, not because I was disobeying, but just because I wanted God to show me how to save my own house. And only a handful of people that I was related to were walking in obedience with him. My wife and I began to just come into agreement and storm the heavens and cry out to God night and day to save our families. And in about an 18-month period, we saw every single person on both sides of our families that we were related to saved and then wow. transformed and then, and then delivered and then healed of things that they needed to heal from. And, and we've got one holdout still. There's one uncle that we have that, that's the last holdout of my family. And, and when he gets saved, I'm going to be able to say that every man, woman, and child that has my bloodline and that has my wife's bloodline knows Jesus because we've prayed and we've gone to them with his love. But to say the gospel to them is one thing. But then you have to prove it when they show up and ask you for help. Or when they don't act very Christ-like, then you have to keep your heart and not alienate them because you think you're better than they are. So you, you get tested in these things. You have to love your own family. And you have to love your city. And you have to love your nation. But it starts first with me and then with my family and then with my community. As I walk that out, it has gotten more and more amazing, the depth and the revelation of that. Sounds real simple, but walking that out is not easy. It's it's hard to lay your life down for your family. Um, it's hard to put them as a priority when nations are calling. Um, I had a cousin that asked me for $700 
a while back so he could start a business. And I had the money in the bank, but it was it was about all I had. I I would have had to clean out my ministry account, and and so I, I said, well, I you know I'd like to help you. I could give you a little bit, but I don't know if I can give you that. And I said, that's uh, all the cash I have on hand at the moment. And he went away disappointed because I didn't help him. And a year later, the Lord told me I needed to repent for that. And then he said, if you'll go fix that right, I'll start saving everybody in your house. So he already had the business established. He got the loan at the bank. He had to pay interest on it. And I went to him and asked him forgiveness because I had withheld what I had from my relative, from my kin. And I had made him a slave. When I believed God, I've always trusted God to take care of my needs. If I had given him the money that I had, I know God would have replaced it for me because he's always done that. It wasn't a money problem, it was a heart problem. So I repented to him for that. And after that is when most of the members of my household started getting saved like dominoes falling. You you don't always know what the issue is. Sometimes it's just a little thing that didn't seem that important. But if Jesus didn't like it, and it wasn't what he would have done, those kinds of things that we repent for may be the transforming thing that changes our whole household or our whole city. That's how revival comes. And so my cousin and I have a pretty good relationship now, and his business has done very well, but he doesn't owe the bank any money anymore. I had to fix that. And so when this financial crisis hit, that may seem like a small deal. What's $700? But when a righteous man won't give his own relative $700 without interest, then do I have a right to ask God to bring down the Federal Reserve? <laughs> yeah, right. So I, I, that's the kind of repentance that I, I think we need to really come into a greater understanding of, of whether it's small or great. We have to have God's heart in our, our ways, especially towards those that are righteous and towards those that we're related to. And then if we have God's heart towards the lost, um, they start getting saved real easy when they see the love of God in us towards one another. And the last thing is just uh, we need more warriors. We need people that are bold and fearless and will go out and change the world. It's really time for men, real men, to stand up and put their foot down and say, enough of the enemy in the gate and drive him out. But to do that, I have to get him out of me before I can get him out of my city. And so uh, it starts with prayer and repentance and recovenanting with God in some area that you might not be walking right in. But once you get that, it's time to go back to the gates of our city and take them back for righteousness' sake. and just create a standard that the wicked cannot prosper in.
been listening to the Days of Noah podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate each and every listener out there. As always, please remember to like, share, and follow our work as we progress on this channel to grow it, get it out to more people. We are very appreciated again to Tim Bentz for allowing us to post this portion of his interview with Rob Skiba. And we are looking forward to having a follow-up with Tim uh, in the hopefully the next few weeks to uh, discuss some of these principles that he described. Uh, tune in next week. Uh, we're going to have a commentary between myself, Luke, and Don on this topic and, and just how it impacted us personally. So thanks again for tuning in and see you next week. God bless.